I'm Jeff Hunt, and this is Human Capital, produced by Goalspan. My day job is, of course, CEO at Goalspan, but one of my passions is hosting this podcast where we get to uncover the deeply human aspect of work. On this episode, we're going to explore the tension that many leaders feel between trying to protect their organizations from legal trouble and creating cultures of humanity, openness, and compassion. History is unfortunately filled with examples of lawsuits where companies were either not well protected legally or had cultures that were more prone to employ litigation despite being protected. When these two are combined, it's actually a recipe for disaster. So today we're gonna talk about creating cultures that embody the owner's mentality, if you will, so that even though you have legal protections, you really don't need them. My guest on the show today is Deborah Moros, and she is a highly qualified person to help us explore this complicated topic. Deb is a licensed attorney, but she's also Chief Human Resources Officer at HealthAid Kombucha. Deb is a keynote speaker, and she is active on several boards, including Carver Skateboards and Helper. Welcome, Deb. Thank you, Jeff. You know, I'd be in trouble if I were working at HealthAid because I love their kombucha and I'd be wired all the time. Do you like drink a lot of health aid kombucha? I do. I do. You know, I've, I've learned a lot about gut health while working at health aid and the incredible impact the gut has on our physical and mental well-being. So having prebiotics and probiotics on tap <laughs> has been a really wonderful benefit of working at HealthAid. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I know you're busy and we're going to jump in, but before we get into this topic, can you give me the thumbnail of your career journey and maybe share who inspired you along the way? Yeah, you bet. I am a recovering employment attorney. I've been at this for a few decades, shall we say. (laughs) And I actually started off selling HR services for a Fortune 500 company and became interested in employment law. At that time, the FMLA and the ADA were heating up and I was being asked questions by clients about these emerging areas of law that I couldn't answer. So, and and then at the same time, we had a sexual harassment investigation take place in our office and the HR person at my um, former employer was so professional in the way uh, she handled the matter. She walked that fine line of wanting to conduct a thorough and prompt and objective investigation and also protect the women in the office and and the employee or the company. So I wasn't really actively involved in that suit, but I was asked to um, be a a witness through an interview. And I was like, I need to learn how that woman did what she just did. And at the time, there were not many labor and employment law schools in the country. I applied to Chicago-Kent, got in and loved every second of it since. Since graduating from law school, I've kind of had three different types of roles, you know, first as as an attorney, um, also as in-house counsel and um, an HR executive, 
And then I've also had a couple runs at being an entrepreneur and um, starting and selling two businesses. Wow, that's a great snapshot. And it sounds like it gave you such broad experience, which has sort of brought you to the present. And maybe you can help connect the dots. So you have culture on one side and compliance or legal protection, legal compliance on the other but they are often not thought of in the same realm, but there is a connection. So connect the dots for us. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I think about this is imagine if you were working at a company and you were paid differently than your uh, male counterparts. So that's a compliance issue, right? That's going to certainly affect culture. You know, I was reading yesterday about a case, I think it was in the Sixth Circuit, where an employee was receiving in his locker grotesquely racist notes. That's a compliance issue. That's also a culture issue. So I think of culture as the umbrella. And under culture are things like vision, mission, values, or what I call VMV. There's what I call DEI and B, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belongingness. There's obviously compliance as a part of culture. There's learning and development. There's the type of communication culture that's in the organization. Is it a, a candid, transparent speak up culture? You know, what's the cadence on responding to emails? How do meetings run? So, very broad kind of concept around communication. And then also, you know, the extent to which benefits and comp and career pathing are a part of the employee experience. Is it 75th percentile? Is it the 25th percentile? Those kinds of things are going to impact culture. So that's a long way of saying, you know, culture to me is very broad and compliance is an element toward creating an ideal culture. I see. So the aspects you just mentioned seem to touch almost every area of the business or organization. And what was coming to mind for me was that if you're doing those things well, if you are communicating transparently and you have empathy and you have the proper equitable compensation structure and you have a culture of belonging, then all of these things are going to create more of a community of trust, if you will. And this was what I was trying to tee up in the intro about this owner's mentality concept, because even if I'm, if I'm far removed from the ownership of the organization, if I believe the owners actually have my best interest at heart, aren't I less likely to be confrontational about legal, you know, potential uh, things where I could sue the company? And secondly, Deb, and I, I'd love your response on this, isn't it also true that I'm going to be more likely to be a person that's going to protect the organization myself? So if I see somebody doing something that's going to put the company at risk, I'm going to speak up. Are those truisms? Absolutely. You know, I think for the most part, people sue when they feel disrespected. 
employees quit their job when they think that the manager specifically, but also the company doesn't care about them. How do we demonstrate care? First and foremost, it's by making sure that, for example, non-exempt employees have rest periods and meal breaks per the law. Demonstrating care is shows up with things like not how was your weekend, but I want to take the next hour to talk about you. How are you growing here? What's getting in the way of your success? What does your career path look like? How can I be in service to your development? What podcasts are you listening to? Books are you reading? Who's your mentor? What networking are you doing? Are there conferences you've been attending? That's to me how we demonstrate care. We also demonstrate care by actively listening to employees. Simple things like not interrupting them or being the smartest person in the room, even though, you know, you might be a vice president and, you know, you've done, you've got the playbook, letting people shine, giving them credit when um, things go well, taking responsibility if things don't go well, um, not blaming. Those are ways in which employers and managers demonstrate care, paying fairly, also, nowadays, more importantly than ever, offering a flexible work situation. You know, I talked to an employee the other day and she's like, she's like, let me call you back. I'm on my way to a yoga class. And uh, it was like noon. I'm like, oh, awesome. Have a great class. I'll catch you on the flip side. Right. She is. And then she's like, by the way, one of the many reasons I love working here is because I can do this. Right. That flexibility demonstrates care. People are less likely to sue if they care about the employer. And you're right, Jeff, they're more likely to speak up and say, I'm observing a behavior or a practice that is misaligned with the values we've agreed define who we are during day-to-day and also during stressful times. And if you, an employer has the back of an employee, they're going to have the back of the employer and speak up. I am a huge fan of creating a speak up culture. Some people think it's controversial and it's not easy to do because we're taught as young children, like keep your head down or you get your neck chopped off. But the reality is the people on the line, the people on the street, the people in the office, they're a lot more connected to the day-to-day of what's actually happening than than the C-suite. And if they can speak up comfortably and safely, we are gonna be much more likely to see problems and challenges that we might not otherwise have noticed. And they're gonna feel valued and respected um, and also grow. So uh, absolutely the answer is yes and yes. What are some strategies to create a speak up culture? Yeah. So the first thing is to define what it means for each organization. We have to have buy-in from the board and the CEO along with the entire executive team or it will not work. So once we define, say we, we, we say for us, speak up means raising your hand in a meeting when you might feel scared or embarrassed. It means 
calling out a manager or a boss or even the CEO if something is askew. And it means exercising my voice when I have something that I need to say or if I have a question. Okay, so let's just pretend that's what we're defining for now is speak up. Then we have to roll this out. And we can roll it out by transparently shining a bright light on our current state. So for example, by saying, right now we probably don't have an ideal speak up culture because I've noticed that, you know, when I ask tough questions in meetings, there was like stone cold silence. <laughs> or when we have a town hall, I'm not getting tough questions. Or I've noticed that there's some chatter behind the scenes about you know certain people and instead there should be peer-to-peer -peer crucial conversations so that's our current state sure and then we we lay out the vision for speak up what we envision for speak up is a b and c what do you guys think what are we missing what else should we be doing so we get buy-in and then we map out how to get from current to ideal. So what we're going to start doing is during meetings, we're going to acknowledge people who speak up. We're going to do trainings on how to create a safe space for people by gracefully accepting feedback. You know, we're going to do trainings on how to, how to have crucial conversations Right. So kind of building in some infrastructure around that layout, like a, a roadmap to get from that current to ideal. It definitely takes time. It's a process to build a speak up culture. Sure. Yeah, uh, it's, it doesn't happen overnight, but I think also publicly acknowledging it as a value and then rewarding people is critical. But the key is that leadership em embrace it and create a safe space like saying things like oh my gosh that must have been like was that hard to tell me that i'm i'm so grateful for that feedback your help you were brave enough to share that with me and now i'm going to be a better professional for it so thank you so much what else tell me more and then zip it <laughs> yes exactly I love those examples, and I'm just reflecting on how what you're describing for organizations to do is this intentional and proactive inventory on their own culture, and it's not different to what they do really well for their employees. So with an employee, obviously, you're, you're identifying the role that they're in and what their strengths are, what their growth opportunities are, and their goals. You're wanting to establish those and you're really talking about flipping that and doing that for the organization where we are taking inventory on our culture. Do we have a speak up culture? Are we able to actually speak openly and freely in a psychologically safe environment that promotes this type of behavior and discussion? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, to the, I love where you're going with that because to the extent we can have measurable goals around something like speak up culture, we're going to be better off because some of this is like, it's hard to ascertain whether we have an authentically comfortable speak up culture. Part of it is like, you know it when you see it, but it, it I, I, I do believe, I'm a big believer in measuring and tracking goals, intangible things like culture, 
um, leadership acumen, managerial intelligence, speak up, those kinds of things. It just takes a little bit more work to figure out how to measure it, but it's all measurable. Yeah, and you can do that with surveys, right? It seems like the key takeaway there is also that if you do measure it and you do run the surveys, do something with the data. If we're not doing well, share with the employees what the initiatives are going to be to improve that situation, right? Totally. Share candidly. If we're going to if we're going to uh, measure, for example, whether we have a speak up culture by asking questions such as our peers sharing feedback with each other. Say say there's that one question out of 10 questions we might ask annually. I really think that survey results like that should be shared across the company. If you take a survey and don't find out what the survey results are, I'm not inclined to take the survey again. I want to know what the results are. Right. It seems like it could actually have a counter effect on morale. So if I take the time to give my survey results, but then I see that the company is not, or the organization's not doing anything with those results, then I'm going to be very frustrated. That's the worst possible thing an employer can do when it comes to attempting to build an ideal culture. Part of what I used to do is culture assessments. That would include like deep, deep, deep dive HR audits and then engagement surveys, uh, which has to be tight and statistically valid and and really um, well thought out. But that's like black and white. And then stakeholder interviews where people are sharing one-on-one in a safe, confidential space are the color to the black and white. And that will give you a good sense of the, along with looking at things like turnover, unwanted turnover, and employee complaints that have come in and questions from town halls or whatever, they'll start to give you a good sense of the current state of engagement and culture. If we assess that and don't share on it, or worse, don't do anything, there goes the trust. We're done. It's over. So I've had clients in the past where, you know, they were like steadfast. We're not going to, we know it's so bad. We're bleeding out here. We're not going to share the results. And I I wouldn't take the work because it's just not going to work. This idea comes from uh, war tribunals. There's a sociological advantage to airing out the dirty laundry, putting a spotlight, put, put it in the light of day. Yes, exactly. So we can mourn, theoretically mourn together, acknowledge what happened, and then unite on a collective vision for moving forward. If you skip that step, it, it won't work. And it reminds me of the old book by Jim Collins, Good to Great, where he really goes into confronting the brutal facts. It seems to me, Deb, that organizations and leaders that do that really well immediately gain more trust and respect from their people, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. The shove it under the rug leaders are of yesteryear. Today's leaders, you know, I was just reading something this morning said that candidates now are demanding DEI and B stats. How many women are in leadership ranks? Prove to me that you have pay equity. Um, That's the new, that's today. That's what's happening. And really, and you and I are both on different boards. And I think from a board perspective and a governance capacity, 
one of the important factors of change, if you will, to make sure that we're holding these organizations accountable for making sure their ranks are properly diversified in every way. Yeah, I mean, that, that, we could do a whole other podcast on that. It is um, one of the great opportunities of leadership today it is to create both gender as well as ethnic diversity, but also neurological possibilities and diversity and, and religious and sexual orientation and all of the protected classes. Yeah. Do you have any advice for leaders that really don't know where to begin to protect themselves so that something, because something can still happen that's uh, puts the organization at risk, even though they may have a very favorable culture, right? Totally. Yeah. And that's the, the newer nuance to all of this over the last 10 years that I would say I've seen evolve is there are unfortunately what I call like professional plaintiffs, people who perhaps used to do like a slip and fall in a grocery store and they will come into a workplace and, and, and basically lie about what's happening regardless of how much care an employer or manager demonstrates, they're going to, they're going to set you up for a lawsuit. And then there are also what I call unprofessional plaintiffs. So there are people who might also falsify the truth, but um, do so in a really sloppy way because they don't know what they're doing. It's obviously a little bit easier to deal with, with the unprofessional plaintiffs for the professional plaintiffs. The, or people who are just going to sue regardless of having a strong culture, which does happen. The most important thing employers can do, especially in a fast growth environment, where it's like the Wild West and everybody's wearing different hats and it's whack-a-mole and we're not necessarily buttoned up in every possible way. First and foremost, you know, making sure that um, there's workers comp for all employees, which sounds silly, but I yeah. actually discovered this, you know, before where they're like, oh, wait, we don't have, we don't have any workers comp in Tennessee. They have, I'm making that up, but you know, that state right. requires their own policy that ours doesn't cover. So workers comp, making sure that health insurance is provided to all employees within the appropriate amount of time, because if an employee gets hit by a bus and we forgot to offer them health insurance in time, the employer could be liable. It's big ticket liability. Things like handbooks. I, back in the day as an HR consultant, I used to, you know, draft handbooks. Now I'm just like, have your attorney do it because every comma, every little thing in a handbook an offer letter is so important. The holy grail of HR is the um, employment at will doctrine. Right. And I imagine that as a four legged stool. So the right language has to be in and off the offer letters in the handbook, um, ideally in a job description. And then the fourth leg of the stool is ongoing. The sexual harassment, discrimination, retaliation, those trainings need to be consistent and done um, every single year. I'm not a fan of video trainings because most of them are like snoozers. So I love a live training when we can do it. Wage and hour things are absolutely 911 critical, uh, especially in California, but also all over the country. So that means making sure non-exempt or hourly employees are never 
working off the clock, that you're paying to the minute and not rounding, you know, that rest periods and meal breaks are being taken, and that some bulletproof wage and hour things like time at the station is being done. So they confirm, yes, those are the hours I worked yesterday. So investigating claims that come up right away in a prompt, thorough, and objective manner, um, not punishing or retaliating against people who speak up. Those are some of the very initial things that come to mind when you ask like what on what should the kind of 911 focus legally should be. Yeah. Extremely helpful. I was also thinking that so many examples of these lawsuits come from uh, thing decisions that have been made by the employer that are just not necessarily common sense. Like there was a Supreme Court case around this plastics company. I'm, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it or not, but basically the employee's complaint was that the time clocks were far away from the area that he had to put on his safety gear. And so he was needing to put on his safety gear and then travel for a ways to uh, the time clock, which in principle, some people might say, well, that's such a trivial issue. You're coming to work, but it's really not. And by demonstrating to the employee that you're going to have, you're going to pay them to get equipped properly for safety on their job communicates that you actually care for the employee, right? Right. Yeah, the, the wage and hour stuff, um, the clock, punching in and out, getting paid for every minute, you know, that's what I was saying, like working off the clock. There was a, a Starbucks case, same thing. And it's basically like the employee would punch out and then walk out the door and lock the door because, you know, he or she was the last person. Um, and that act of locking the door was unpaid. Uh, and so it resulted in liability for Starbucks. So it's, it's like the de minimis punches is um, a way that's described. And it's th those little things, employers are like, oh, it's no big deal. I don't, you know, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah. Well, and Deb, before we shift into some lightning round questions, I'm, I'm reflecting on one thing that you said earlier on that seems to be uh, pervasive on the culture side that that could be so helpful. And it's really that people mostly just want to be listened to and heard. Isn't that correct? 100%. Yeah. We, we all human beings want to be seen, valued, appreciated, heard. When I do leadership development, coaching and or workshops, the very first topic we cover is active listening. Turning the, the mind off like, oh, what am I gonna have for lunch? Well, I, my emails are piling up, who just texted me? Gifting, gifting the present moment to that individual. People feel it when they're being heard and listened to. So I couldn't agree more. And that changes culture. 100%. Yeah. yeah. On a recent episode, the expression of listening to understand instead of listening to reply was what came to mind for me. So yeah, yes, exactly. Anyway, let's shift into some lightning round questions. What are you most grateful for? Yeah, my family. The thing I wanted most in life was to be a mom. I have two beautiful, amazing children. And so I would say 
my family, my mom, my brother, my sister. <laughs> How lucky you are. <laughs> what is the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? I twice started businesses that I, I did not take quickly enough from the Wild West to having infrastructure, systems, policies, procedures, practices, tools, resources, though that infrastructure is what holds together sustainable growth. I'm, a I'm more big picture, visionary, future thinking, strategic. So I understood the value of those things kind of, but didn't put enough resources into building out that infrastructure. I would say that's that was a very painful lesson. I had to learn twice. <laughs> That's a great piece of advice. Who is one person you would interview if you could, living or not? You know, I'm hesitant to say because I don't want to sound political, but the truth is it might be Barack Obama. Mm. I, I just admire his leadership style very much. I'm from Illinois and he was a he was a congressperson and he was well known for doing his homework before sessions. And, and that doesn't always happen um, in Congress, but he would read just like book after book after, you know, I admire that very much. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with leadership. I would interview and, and ask him um, everything I could about leadership. What's your top book recommendation? Anything having to do with the intersectionality of meditation and neuroscience that's really where my reading has been as of late. I think it's very interesting to put together practices that are thousands of years old with what we're learning today around neuroscience. I, I know how I feel when I meditate regularly, but it's super cool to learn about the, the, the brain science behind um, what's happening there. And there's so much great advice and counsel on how Meditation helps us to be more present. And if we can extend that into our work day, we're going to be much more effective and we're going to be better at our jobs. We're going to be better colleagues, we're going to be better managers, leaders, employees, right? Totally. I talk a lot about what I call PSA, professional self-actualization. Getting into a state of flow is, for me, uh, calming and um, peaceful. And I have, I would just say higher brain functionality when I'm not multitasking or thinking about the future or the past. When we're here right now today, or when I'm here right now today, I'm a more effective business person and um, servant leader and, and, and colleague. So, but it's a practice. It's a practice for sure. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Kill the ego. Kill the ego. I think ego kills business. It gets in the way of progress. I, you know, it's, it's what causes war and dysfunction and toxicity, and it's what's killing our, our, our environment. And I think when we all realize that we're all connected we're going to just jump in stratospheres as a civilization. Kill the ego. I love that. <laughs> What's the most important takeaway to leave our listeners with today? You know, I think it was Peter Drucker who said culture eats strategy for lunch. 
culture is both strategic and tactical. The, the strategy around it is defining literally down to like one or two sentences. What is your company's culture? And then honestly assessing the current state, envisioning a, an ideal future state, and then mapping out how to get from current to ideal. I love that. Deb, thanks so much for spending time with me and bringing all this wisdom to the show today. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.